Well, good morning. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. I hope you all had a, a very good Thanksgiving. The Bible puts a high value on thankfulness. Um, and we could have looked at various passages that command Thanksgiving or that give the consequences of, of being unthankful. But I thought we, were, we would look at Psalm 107, which is a psalm about thankfulness. Spurgeon called it a psalm of thanksgiving and the motives for it. And it begins with that wonderful verse, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray as we look into your word that you would be pleased uh, to uh, direct our hearts to you, to see you afresh, to uh, see your power, your mercy, your goodness. So we pray that you would create in us thankful hearts because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In most of, of the Bibles, I don't know how it is if you're looking on uh, a Bible on your phone, but before Psalm 107, there's a, a caption that says, Book 5. And that's because the book of Psalms is divided into five divisions or five books. And most Jewish and Christian uh, commentaries believe that there is a correspondence between the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and the five books uh, five divisions of psalms. And so this fifth set of psalms from 107 to the end kind of correspond to the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law or second telling of the law because in the book of Deuteronomy, they're about to enter the land. Just before Moses died, he gives three sermons where he goes back over the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai and, and again lays out all of the, the statements of the covenant. And then he talks about the faithfulness of God. And Psalm 107 uh, talks about God's faithfulness to Israel, particularly during the exile and bringing them back. F.B. Myers speculates that Psalm 107 was written for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles after the return from exile. Uh, and that's recorded in Ezra 3. Uh, verses 1 through 4, but, but nobody knows for certain. The outline of, of Psalm 107 is, is fairly straightforward. There will be an introduction, the first three verses, and then he's going to give four scenarios. First of all, the scenario of some people lost in the desert. Then the scenario of some people who are prisoners. And then the scenario of some who are seriously ill to the point of death. And then lastly, uh, some sailors who are lost at sea in a terrible storm. And then he ends um, that section with a, a section describing God's sovereignty, verses 33 to 42, and some advice for those who would be wise. When you come to interpreting this book of Psalms, um, there are several ways that you can approach it. Uh, for example, Warren Wiersbe uh, says these four pictures are all pictures of Israel coming out of the exile. So Israel in the exile was like someone in a desert, but God led them back home. Israel was like 
uh, someone who was bound during the time in Babylon, bound and they couldn't escape, and then God restored them to the land. Israel was like someone who was seriously ill. Maybe it even looked like it was, there was going to be the death of the nation of Israel, out of their land, scattered, but God restored them. Israel was in a terrible time of storm, but God brought them safely through. And so you can apply it to, to Israel and God's working with them in the exile. Some, and Will McDonald in his commentary, says there's kind of a prophetic look in these verses. So Israel in the desert reminds us of God's care during the wilderness wanderings. Israel in prison reminds us of God's care during the exile. Israel as a, as a terribly sick nation, and, and as we'll see, he talks about uh, to those who are sick that he sent his word. And, and he, he says, you know, that really talks about Israel in the time of the Lord Jesus. Israel was a sick nation. We just went through the book of Hebrews, and we could see how Judaism had really strayed from the path. And the nation was sick. And the Lord Jesus came. You say, well, the whole nation wasn't healed. Well, not everybody who left Egypt entered the land of promise. Not everybody came back from the exile. But there were a remnant of people who came to Christ and, and he healed them. And the last one is a future one. Gen the sea often pictures the Gentiles. And there's coming a time called the Great Tribulation where there will be an attempt to have a Jewish genocide amongst the nations and the Lord Jesus will come and rescue um, his people. But a third way of looking at these verses is that the four illustrations of God's deliverance are four examples of God's delivering power in the lives of all of his people. And so that's the way we're going to approach these verses. So we're going to begin looking at this introduction, and you're saying, 43 verses, he's not going to make it. We will make it, okay? <laughs> um, do you have a life verse? A life verse is a verse that, that kind of you read, as you read through the Bible, God speaks you through that verse, and it's kind of a promise from God, or it's kind of a, a verse that you, you look to, you feel God's given you to, to help you along in life. I remember when I first... Uh, when I was struggling with, with salvation, uh, my verse was John 3.36. He that believes on the Son has eternal life. And I came to the realization, if, if you want to be saved, you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the verse goes on and says, he that does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're under the wrath of God. Those that flee to the Lord Jesus as a refuge and have him as their Savior have presently possess eternal life. And those who don't will walk on into the judgment of God. And that verse led to my salvation. And it was a great verse for assurance when I struggled with assurance. Am I really saved? I would go back to that verse. Have I trusted Jesus Christ? Yes. What does God's word say I have? Eternal life. And God said it. And he cannot lie. Later in life, uh, especially when I was going through lots of things that were very stretching... Uh, God gave me Psalm 61, 2B to 3A. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me. 
And that's a wonderful verse when someone says, hey, we want you to do this, and you've never done this before. And what you really want to say is, no, I'm very content right where I am. I don't want to be stretched. But there's a rock that's higher than you that when you feel overwhelmed, God can lead you to. I really believe this first verse of Psalm 107 is one of two life verses of Israel. Um, I think the first life verse of Israel is Exodus 34, 6, when up on the mountain and Moses wanted to see God and God hid him in the cleft of the rock and passed by him. And it says, it was proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth or faithfulness. And you find that a number of places in scripture and, and we'll see some of those a little bit later. But I think this one also is a life verse because this verse reflects Israel's response to that statement of who God is. He was their God. They were his people. And um, you find it in a number of important places too. In 1 Chronicles 16, 34, when David brought the ark up to Jerusalem, in the hymn of praise that follows that event, you'll find this verse recorded. Forty years later almost, in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14, when they brought the ark into the new temple that Solomon had built and placed the ark of the covenant in the new temple, the glory of God, the cloud of his Shekinah glory, so filled the temple, all the priests were driven out of the temple, and they sang this verse. In chapter 6, 2 Chronicles 6, Moses or Solomon prays, and in verse 7, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. And his glory even fills the temple in a greater way. And it says, all the sons of Israel fell on their faces and praised God. And these are the words they spoke. It's almost Psalm 107, verse 1. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, you have a good king, Jehoshaphat, and the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites have gathered together and they crossed the Dead Sea to attack Israel. Now you have to understand, if they came up from the south, he had fortified cities to protect the entrance. If they came from the, the west, he had fortified cities to protect the west. He had fortified cities to protect the north from Israel. He had no fortified cities to protect because who would cross the Dead Sea? And so Jehoshaphat calls Israel to come to Jerusalem, and they proclaim a fast before the Lord. And a prophet stands up and says, God's going to give you the victory. You don't have to even fight. And so they march out. And Jehoshaphat says to his, his people, um, trust God. And they sang Psalm 107.1, or the words of Psalm 107.1. And it says, God created ambushes between the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Ammonites, and they destroyed each other, and Israel only had to pick up the plunder. They didn't even have to fight. And then in Ezra 3, when they come back from the exile, they sing this song again. This is, this is a key 
verse that reflects when the heart of Israel was right with God. This was their heart. And so let's take a look at this psalm. Psalm 107, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because. For. Because. And the psalmist is going to give the foundational reason for thanking God. And it's the fact that God is good. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and you do good. God in his character is good. That was the message of Exodus 34.6. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. God is essentially, perpetually, superlatively, and infinitely good. And so when you find people interceding for Israel when they've sinned against God and they're under the judgment of God, uh, in Daniel 9, verses 9 and 18, he bases his prayer on God's character and he refers to Exodus 34, 6. And Nehemiah's intercessory for Israel he specifically quotes Exodus 34, 6 in chapter 9, verses 17 and 31 to 32. And he asks for God's help, not based on Israel's obedience, but based on the goodness of God. We should thank God because he's good. His character, his compassion, his grace, his patience, his mercy, his faithfulness make him worthy of praise because he's a foundation. His character is a foundation. We can come to God and we always find him good if we come seeking him. But he goes on and he says, um, not only are you good, but his loving kindness, and that's that word hesed, a loyal, faithful love. Um, he says, up in Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. God demonstrates his goodness of his character in his actions towards us. Loving kindness, King James Version, mercy, is that loyal, faithful love. And notice what it says, it's everlasting we're up and down. We're faithful to God, and then we're unfaithful. But God is consistently faithful in his compassion towards us and will be forever. And so that's worthy of praise. And so he says in verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those who have experienced God's faithful love in his deliverance should bear witness to his goodness and faithful love. For the Israelites, at this time, it was deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. If you look back to Psalm 106, which also begins with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. And look at verse 47. Uh, in, in Psalm 106, he, he's tracing the faithfulness of God through the wilderness wandering, through the time of the judges, through the time of the kingdom. And, and now they're in exile. And in verse 47, he says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. 
And Psalm 107 is the answer to that prayer. That's why Psalm 107 follows 106. God, you've been faithful to us. You've been faithful to us. You've been faithful to us. And we have been disobedient, disobedient, disobedient. And now we're suffering because of our disobedience. And all we can cling to is you're good. And you have a faithful love. Rescue us. And God gloriously rescues them. You'll find this verse in a lot of places. Um, not only in those places that I mentioned in 2 Corinthians and Ezra, but in Psalm, Psalm 106, verse 1, Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm and talks about the Lord Jesus. It, it even gives the words that are said when he comes on the triumphal entry that the people shout to him. It begins and ends with this verse. See, they've experienced the goodness of God in being returned from the exile, as, as he says in verse 3 and gathered from the lands from the east and from the west and north and the south. They're there in Israel. This probably, I, I really do believe, is probably being sung at the Feast of Tabernacles. There they are in Jerusalem, and they're looking around, and look how God's brought us back from all these places. And he's brought us back, and his temple's been rebuilt, and we're celebrating the goodness of God. But I'll tell you, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ, you've got to have a lot more to thank him for. Because we have a Savior who went to the cross and died for us as we celebrated in the first meeting. We know how deep the faithful love of God is. It brought the Son of God from heaven and put him on a cross to bear our sins so that we who deserve hell could become sons of God, sons and daughters of God and be in heaven for all eternity. And he says, listen, if you've been redeemed, say something. Say something. So we come to these four pictures. So let's look at these examples of the goodness and loving kindness of God. Verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find an inhabit a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. You have some people, they're hopelessly lost. They're wandering in, in a wilderness. It, literally, it's a desert of ways. There's no clear path ahead. Have you ever walked through the woods on a path and, and you're walking along and somehow you took something else, and all of a sudden you come and you're at the end, and there's no path forward. What do you do? It's a desert of paths. There's no path out of here. Well, these people were in that situation, and they were running out of resources. They're, they were thirsty and hungry. Their food and water was gone. Their soul was fainting within them. They were at the, the end of their rope. Sometimes we experience that. If you ask a four-year-old what he's going to be when he's uh, an adult, he has an answer right away, an astronaut or a sailor or a something. Ask a high school senior, so what school are you going to go to and what are you going to be? You might get a different answer. Aren't you, isn't it nice that there's someone 
who can lead in that situation. But this is really referring to people. Ray Steadman, in his book, describes them as having this as a lifestyle. He calls them the restless, wandering from place to place, job to job, experience to experience, trying to find something to satisfy. And they cannot satisfy, so they amuse themselves. They can't satisfy themselves because only God can satisfy. And there's a whole world out there living that way. Going from this to that to this to that. And, and they have no clear understanding why they're here, where they're headed, what's going on. They're hopelessly lost. And aren't you glad someone cares about them? God does. God does. And notice what happens. They, verse 6, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. To those who recognize they're lost and pray, God answers. And he delivers them out of their distresses. And he also led them by a straight way to an inhabited city. You know, sometimes we, we say, no, straight way? My life, as I look back over it, looks like a zigzag. You know, when, those of you who were here when we studied the life of Joseph, you know, Joseph was sold into Israel or into Egypt and 13 years passed before he was number two in Pharaoh's court in a land that hated outsiders and especially hated shepherds. Every step God took Joseph through led straight to the throne. It may look zigzag in our eyes, but from heaven's eyes, every step was necessary, and it took him straight to the throne. God says, I'll lead you in a straight or level path. And so he says, verse 8, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. That verse will be repeated four times in this passage after each one of these scenarios. Give thanks to God. Because you've experienced his faithful love. He has led you through. And his wonderful works. Again, referring back to that study of Joseph. Joseph was told to go see his brothers. He went to where they were supposed to be. And they weren't there. And he just happened to meet a guy who overheard that his brothers said they were going up the, up the road. And he went up there to see his brothers. And it just happened to be on a caravan route. So when his brothers were, threw him in a pit and were deciding, thinking about killing him, at the exact right time, a caravan came through. And they decided in their greed, greed to sell him instead of kill him. You know, sometimes when you look back over your life, you find out you met the right person at the exact right time. You were in the exact right place. You had the exact right scenario to take you where you needed to go. Those are God's wonderful works. And they're based in his loving kindness. And so we can look back over our lives and we can see. And so he says, verse 9, he satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He's filled with what is good. God satisfies those that hop around, hop around, hop around, trying to amuse themselves because they can't find satisfaction. In a relationship with God, there's satisfaction. 
And you can see the wonderful works of God. He goes on to the second scenario. Verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help. Here we talk about hopelessly bound. Hopelessly lost, God can help. Hopelessly bound, prisoners because they rebelled against the words of God. These people are hopelessly bound because of their own actions of disobedience to God's word and God's counsel. Like men, they're held in chains, uh, like being held in a physical prison. And it can refer to a physical prison. There There are Christians who are in physical prisons, who came to know Christ in prison or, or knew Christ before, but, but they're in prison because of their own actions. There are other prisons. There's the prison of addiction, to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography. There's um, the, the prison of, of emotions, fear, anger, that keeps you from from being able to move. There's the prison of habits. There's the prison of past sins. Joseph is, is, remember, if you remember the story, Joseph has now two years been number two in Egypt, and his brothers come looking for food, and he wants to test their heart, so he locks them up, and they don't know he, he can understand their language He always worked through an interpreter, and he hears them describing the day they sold him into slavery and weeping over it and saying, this has happened to us because of that. Those men had been bound in a prison of their own making. And here are people bound in a prison of their own making. And look at at how uh, they're described. Um... They had not realized God was telling the truth. (laughs) And so they rebelled against his word. They chose to go in the opposite direction. And now uh, their terrible situation includes darkness, the shadow of death, misery, chains, labor, and there was none to help. Someone described them as prisoners languishing in their dark dungeon, dispirited and helpless, serving an indefinite sentence. This time of year, no doubt, repeatedly on the TV, you'll have an opportunity to see Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And Scrooge, who is bound in chains, though he doesn't know it, is visited by the ghost of his ex-partner, Marley, who's bound in chains. And he says to Marley, why do you have those chains? He says, these are the chains I forged during my life. And there are people out there bound in misery bound by things as strong as iron chains because they've rebelled against the word of God they've rejected God's advice and what happens verse 13 they come to the place where they realize they have this indefinite sentence nothing's going to change there's no help Verse 13, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them 
out of their distresses and he brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. They recognized where they were and they cried out to God. And God delivered them. Oh, you could still be in prison. Paul talked about himself not being a prisoner of Caesar, but the Lord's prisoner. And there's a number of books you could read of people who, who are in prison who found Christ and, and the title of their book or in the book you'll find them saying, I'm freed. But we live in a world surrounded by people who are bound, longing to be free. And God says, my heart is that they be freed. And, and so he says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his sunder, wonders to the sons of men, for he has shattered the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Please don't, don't let you, me give you the idea that some of these addictions, some of these things that bind people are easy. He says they're like iron, they're like bronze, the two strongest metals of that day. But God is bigger. And God can deliver. If there's someone here, you're secretly bound. God's heart is that you be free. That you experience his loving faithfulness. And you be free. Then he comes down to the next, those hopelessly sick. Verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way, because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Notice this isn't all sickness. They are sick because of their unwise way of life. You have examples in Scripture. Uh, the great king Asa, who was rebuked by a prophet, so he locked him up in prison. And when some of the people complained, he put some of them to death. So God smote him with a disease of the feet. And he sought the physicians, but he did not seek the Lord. And he died of his illness. Uzziah, the great king of, of Judah, who became so powerful because of God's blessing, and his heart was lifted up. And he said, all the kings around me are both king and priest, I'm going to go in and offer incense in the temple. And God smote him with leprosy, and he was a leper to the day he died. There are people who are, are sick mentally, emotionally, physically, because of unwise actions. They have no one to blame but themselves. And it's serious. They drew near to the gates of death. And, and the answer is to recognize your situation flows from your rebellion against God, your disobedience to God, and to seek God, to recognize and pray. And God acts. And so it talks about he delivered them from their destructions. He saved them out of their distresses. God steps in and saves and heals now, God doesn't heal every sickness, otherwise nobody would ever die. But for believers, he does eventually remove all sickness and sorrow forever. But God wants to step in. And so he says, let them, 
Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. He says, these, especially who were so close to death, who I delivered from, from illness, they ought to respond by joyful service, giving thanks and giving back. And then verses 23 to, 20 to 32, he talks about perhaps the most striking of all because the Jews weren't a seafaring people. Uh, sailors facing awe-inspiring rage of the sea. Look at what it says. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. There's some, uh, you know those motivational posters? Well, there's some demotivational posters that I really like. And one of them is, if you're, if you're afraid, if you never sail outside of shore, you'll never know the sheer terror of being lost at sea. And these are these men. They've been on the ocean. They've seen God's action in the ocean. And here's one event. For God spoke and he raised up a strong wind. You see the wind rising and beginning to shriek, they, which lifted up the waves of the sea. So the waves suddenly become huge mountainous waves. So they rose up. You see them rose up to the heavens. You see the ship going up the crest of the wave and then crashing down. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in, in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. Here are these sailors and they're... they're the ship is being tossed about so much, they're staggering like they're drunk. They were at their wits' end. Literally, they, their wisdom was swallowed up. They don't know anything. These men who have all this nautical knowledge and wisdom, they don't have a single thing that can help. Their wisdom has been swallowed up. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. God stepped in. There was no hope but prayer. In the book of Jonah, God brings about such a storm because of Jonah's sin. And, and they throw everything overboard to lighten the ship. And it's still no hope. And so every man's praying to his own God. And then they notice Jonah's not there. He's down in the bottom of the boat sleeping. And the captain comes down and says, listen, we're praying to our God and it's not helping. Pray to your God. Why? Because the only thing they have left is prayer. And an impossible situation. Law, hopeless because of danger. God is more than enough if we recognize and pray. And so he says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful, or I'm sorry, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of elders. In the next section, he talks about the sovereignty of God. He'll talk about the sovereignty of God over nature, verses 33 to 42. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land, a salt waste because of the wickedness who dwell in it. God can take away all the fertility of the land if he chooses to do it in judgment. And God can take away all the goodness in your life because God's sovereign. 
But he can also do the opposite. He changes the wilderness into a pool of water and dry land into springs water. He, there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also he blesses them and they multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. God is sovereign over what we have in our lives, our possessions. God is sovereign over all the things, and he's sovereign over people. When they are diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow, he pours contempt upon the princes and makes them wander in a a pathless waste. He sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, makes his family like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but the unrighteous shuts his mouth. God can raise up and bring down rulers, It's in his hand. We don't have to fear changes of rulership. God is sovereign over that. I love that that verse 42. The upright see it and glad. If you're looking for these things and you see it, you're glad. You see God's care. You see God's action. The the unrighteous, they don't know what to say. They, They don't understand what's going on. They don't know why this is happening. And so God closes Who's wise? Here God's going to tell you who's wise. And you can ask yourself, am I wise? He says, let him give heed to these things. The testimony of these and others like them found in this this psalm. Words like, don't rebel against God's word. There are not hopeless situations to God. Learn in your situation to recognize and go to prayer. Then he says, consider. Learn to observe wisely. Spurgeon says, we must, not ob- we must observe wisely, otherwise we may soon confuse ourselves and others with hasty reflections upon the dealings of the Lord. F.B. Meyer says, let us ask God to give us the true wisdom and spiritual insight that we may look out for, for these indications of divine mercy and treasure them for our encouragement and comfort as sources of praise. So he says, consider the faithful love of God. Spurgeon says, those who notice providences, those who notice God's working behind the scenes. When Joseph later noticed, oh, if I met that guy, I never would have gone to see my brothers. And if, the carav- if they hadn't been up there, they would have killed me. But there was a- that's where the caravans came through. And at the exact right moment, the caravan came through. Those who notice the providences of God shall never be long without a providence to notice. Did you catch that? If you're wise and you're looking for the hand of God in the experiences of your life, you'll never be long lacking of not seeing God's hand in your life. Bill McDonald said, whoever is wise will see the hand of God behind the changing fortunes of men and nations and will learn the lessons from history and current events especially the mercy of the Lord in his dealings with those who obey his word.
BBC News had a reporter who's lived in America for the last eight years. And he's going back to England at the end of this year. And so he wrote a blog on his time and what, what he saw in America. But he began by talking about Thanksgiving. And he said, we don't have this in England. This is an American holiday. But he made one statement. He said, Thanksgiving is the loveliest of occasions. And I think when we look to see God's hand and we thank him because he's good and my life is surrounded by his faithful love and I see his wonderful works and I give thanks to him, God says, that's the loveliest occasion. May it be in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in, even though we live in a world where people are hopelessly lost, flitting about, they're hopelessly bound by things even stronger than iron chains. They're in seemingly hopeless situations of danger. They're hopelessly sick. We have a God who's able. And so when we face those things, help us to come to you first and foremost. And when we meet people like this, Lord, let us be able to say, listen, there's a God who loves, who cares, who can meet your need. Because we ask it in Jesus' name.